0: This is your host, Daniel Storm, and you're listening to the RPG Radio Show. If this is your first time listening, you can start here, or at the episode titled Dawn, Epilogue Part 1. These vignettes are meant to stand alone, though listening to the first season would provide heaps of context. To our returning listeners, welcome back to doom What follows is the second part of our epilogue for our first season. Like our interludes, these are pre-written and not improvised. Now... Sit back and enjoy performances from our talented guests. Benton Olivares plays Imarin, Scott Berry plays an unknown speaker, and Noir Enigma plays Mick Carpfen. Epilogue Mick Carpfen.
1: Mick tilted the edge of his paddle, cutting it into the water at just the right angle so he wouldn't disturb the roots of the thresher fig. His canoe was light and made from the smooth, dried husk of a gourd that grew two days north of freshwater. As a tad, he had hand-waxed the outside of it for days until it shone brighter than Batoon's eye. The craft skimmed across the surface of the mire, navigating around the roots of trees that reached up and all but obscured the red and blue moons that hung low in the sky. Like always, he was up before the rest of his kin. He slunk to the dock and slipped off in his canoe before anyone could follow him to his fishing spot. He was out to catch a mage tail. Craftiest fish in the whole mire they were. Tough to catch, but they were the only thing the folks in Landon Morass would trade for from the carp fin clan anymore. Two fins flanked a flat body that ended in a rigid, whip-like tail. Mick was the only fisher in all of freshwater that always came back with a mage tail. Sure, Dane and Guar caught one occasionally, but Mick... He always came back with one. Not a few of the village tadpoles had tried to follow Mick to his spot, and some of the elders had tried their paddles at it too, but none of them were half the swamp drifter he was. Mick laid back flat in his craft as it slid beneath a hanging curtain of strangler vines and saw it. Dead rock. A pyramid of violet obsidian jutting out of the water and muck at an odd angle, Nothing grew around it for several hundred feet, but in his middle age, Mick was cautious enough to not paddle any closer than the break in the trees, which mostly obscured the lonely monolith. This is where the mage tails lived. Only place in the whole mire, and any that ventured away from here were certainly far from their nest. There was a reason he wouldn't tell anybody where his spot was. Nobody was supposed to come to Dead Rock. It brought Patoon's luck on anyone who saw it, or so the elders said. It had certainly never brought any bad luck to Mick. Quite the opposite, really. Everyone knew where it was. Follow the chirping till the chirping goes quiet. Nothing, not even the blood flies, flew near Dead Rock. The mage tail seemed comfortable enough. And by fishing here for years, Mick had earned a reputation of being the best fisher in freshwater, land in morass, and maybe even the whole Kenland marshes. It's considered a rite of passage for Carfin Tads, touching the dead rock. Young Tads must go alone in the middle of the night. It's a test of swamp drifting skills as much as it's a test of the spine. After Mick had burst into their hut shouting that he touched the dead rock, Mick's mother patiently explained, Everybody always says they touched the dead rock, Mick, but nobody actually touches it. If they did, they'd be dead. And if you did, you'd be dead. But Mick really had touched the dead rock, and when he told his friends later, he could hear the exaggerated bravado and the inconsistencies of their stories compared to his own experience. But that was years ago, and he had never stopped coming back. He saw a faint purple glow that recalled him to his task. Masked and muted through the murky water, the light looked more brown than purple, but he knew that as soon as the mage tail jumped out of the water, its tail would shine as bright as one of the moons. The tricky thing about fishing for mage tails is that they were also fishing for you. They could jump clean out of the water, wrap their tail around an unsuspecting frog king and dragged them to the depths before they knew what hit them. Mick was cleverer than a fish, though. He stood in his canoe, exaggerating his movements, and deliberately sending out ripples as he did so. He tied a long cord to the stem that formed the prow of his canoe, and bow and quiver securely strapped to his back, leapt into the low, gnarled roots of the silver cypress. He knotted the cord securely, wrapping it twice, and then under and over itself before roughly kicking the canoe and sending out fresh ripples over the stagnant water. With a quick glance over his shoulder, he started climbing the silver cypress tree. There were now five dingy purple glows around his canoe. Grateful he wasn't still in the gently rocking craft, he climbed quickly up the slick bark to a jutting limb, his fingernails providing the grip he needed to scale the trunk. He knew he'd have one shot before they figured out he wasn't in the boat and scattered. Skittish little creatures, but they were crafty as a cloud stalker. Gripping the branch with his feet, Nick tied the end of another length of thin cord to a carved notch in his arrow. He tied the other end of the cord to the branch and dangled out the slack of the cord until it nearly touched the surface of the water below. One shot. He breathed slowly Fixing his eyes on the space just above his bobbing canoe. He drew the bowstring, arms and back burning as he held the tension, waiting for the moment. The muted and chaotic light displayed that flared just beneath the surface threatened to wreck his focus as the water around his canoe began to churn. Soon, one shot, as they swarmed, one of them surged out of the water. As the mage tail breached the water, a shout, clear and angry, cut through the humid air. His arrow cut through the air just behind the mage tail as both fish and the arrow vanished into the murky water. The lambent tails of the fish streaked into the murk and out of sight. This is your fault, Emoran. No one else's. Kalmir, Senrel, Mithra are dead, and we didn't get a single stone to show for it. My fault. And how exactly was I supposed to know that that armored golem could call lightning underwater? Mick scrambled to the trunk, putting layers of branches, wood, and bark between him and the voices coming from Dead Rock. In his panic, Mick dropped his bow. It crashed through several branches before clattering against the roots. Quiet! What was that? The first voice snapped. Probably just another one of those... Strangling vines, or glider bears, or any other number of foul creatures that call this place home. This was a suicide mission. We need to get out of here while we still can. No. no. we rest and we go back in. We were told the entire plan hinges on those stones. And we won't leave here without them. Someone has to end it. Someone has to end her tyrannical reign. And if not us, then Who? Who will dare stand up to the oppressor? You? With those stones, we have our first real chance in centuries. Maybe ever. I still remember why I joined. Do you? He paused before saying. I'll take first watch. Rest. Recover your magic. We will sorely need it. Nick supposed the second speaker must have acquiesced because both voices ceased to cut through the night air. He waited for hours before he felt brave enough to creep down the trunk, recover his bow, untether his canoe, and paddle away. And for the first time, Nick would return to freshwater without a mage tail.
0: I'm Daniel Storm, and I play Pateret and Lord Ziladim. I'm Jesse Jurdak, and I play Akadim Kuldir. Epilogue, Pateret Pateret stood to his full and domineering height, just behind Ziladim's floating quartz throne. The Lord Brilliant scribbled intently at his overcluttered desk. The deep gash in the Minotaur's side from Lenriesh's blade was several days healed now. the fallout from the Inquisitor's disappearance was just beginning. Zilidim's quill continued to scratch, despite the thunderous footfalls and angry bellows that sounded ever closer. Where is he, brother? Where is Linriash? Akadim stormed as he burst into Zilidim's chambers. Why, hello, brother. How was Wildspring? I hear it's lovely there this time of year. What with the leaves just starting to show their autumnal... I have had enough of your schemes. Don't try and worm your way out of answering. I know you know where he is. Akadim interjected. Lenriash, Ziladim said, taking time with each syllable, as though the word were wholly foreign. That blind fellow who's always hanging off the end of your cape? Now that you mention it, I do believe he was here in quite a temper the other day. Some misunderstanding about a few prisoners who were actually agents of mine. As far as I know, the Inquisitor left with them. Now, if he's gone missing since he was here, that's hardly... (sighs) Arkadim raged, grabbing one of the stone tablets piled haphazardly on his brother's desk and hurtling it to smash into the roaring fireplace. Trembling, he continued, One day, brother, your lies and schemes will catch up to you. I don't know if I will have it in me to stand up and be your shield on that day. With that, Akadim spun on his heel, leaving as abruptly as he came. Pateret waited several long moments before asking, Do you think he's going to stand in our way? Lord Ziladim seemed to ignore the question for so long. Pateret was surprised when he answered, My brother will do what he thinks is the right thing, even if it's the death of him.
2: I'm Shannon Roby, and I play Sister Raina.
0: Epilogue, Sister Raina.
2: Sister Raina hummed the final lines of the Ballad of Three Timber Jake, stroking a ginger-furred tabaxi kit between her drooping eyes. Around the room, dozens of children in bunks slumbered or held hushed conversations. She stood, shielding the flame of her candle as she strode between beds, tucking and trailing blankets, and leveling admonishing stares at the bunkmates who still whispered and giggled. She passed by 13 empty bunks on her circuitous route, The blankets and pillows had been pilfered by nearby bunkmates, and their absence had only served to highlight the vacancy. Worry twisted her stomach like sour root as she strode past each bed. Such vacancies were rare in a city as large as Caspain, especially in the Timbers District. The Timber home housed nearly 600 children and 30 sisters on six floors under a peaked roof. The stables, other outbuildings, and the home itself were all enclosed within a high stone wall. The orphanage was nearly a small keep, a bastion of safety and light in one of the poorest parts of Caspian. She lit a candle at the door with the stub of her own on the way out of the bunk room, ensuring the children would have light through the night to keep the shadows at bay. Closing the door quietly behind her, Raina walked the worn stone corridors towards her chambers. Rain drummed against the windows, nearly drowning out the sound of her fellow sisters admonishing and soothing their charges in equal measure. Like Raina, sisters Cameron and Nayelin also reported empty beds in their bunk rooms to High Sister Agni, but the High Sister was unmoved by their concern. Raina mimicked the old crone's wavery voice under her breath, muttering what had been the High Sister's response. In my 80 years of working at this orphanage, hundreds, if not thousands of children have left to follow the path of Betun. We must care for the children that have chosen the path of Hyksnos. The beds will be filled soon enough. Hyksnos knows that the brothels haven't stopped producing unwanted whelps. A wave of hot anger swept through Reyna, and her knuckles cracked as she clenched her fists. Wasn't it their Hyksnos given responsibility to care for these children? Wasn't it their responsibility to keep them safe, to give them a place where they could learn and grow in the light of the Radiant One? Isn't that what she swore to Hyksnos all those years ago? Her mind flashed back to her days as a soldier in the Empire's army. The combat training came naturally to her, and in her few skirmishes with bandits in the Grey Dawn, she found that killing did too. At least, it did until that last skirmish. Raina's tour of duty was days away from completion, her company's circuit on the Beacons Highway all but finished when they were attacked by a group of cowardly Grey Dawn combatants. The fighting was brutal and chaotic as the gray cloaks came upon their encampment at night and in force, stealthily eliminating the sentries before they could raise any alarm. Caught unawares, her company suffered heavy casualties before rallying and driving the gray cowards back into the woods. After the battle, Reyna examined the fallen forms around her, checking for signs of life amongst friend and foe alike. She found a shuddering form in a gray cloak that she hazily remembered gutting with the long knife as she sprang from her tent still half asleep. The form lay face down, trembling as blood and mud mingled indistinguishably in the ruddy glow of Basal Deer's moon. She booted the figure roughly onto their back, seeking to give them the dignity of seeing the one who would send them to Hyksnos for judgment. No doubt, it was a far greater dignity than the gray cloak would have afforded her. But as she saw the face of the gutted combatant, her breath caught, and the long knife fell limply from the hand that had only moments earlier been raised to deal a fatal blow. A human boy who couldn't have been a day over 13 stared up at her, eyes glazed over in pain as he wept softly, begging for a mother that could not save him even if she were there. She knelt then, nearly collapsing into the muck as she held his hand, which was sticky with drying blood. Raina didn't know how long she stayed there, smoothing the long hair back from the boy's forehead as his breathing grew ever more shallow. She came back to herself as the first rays of Hyksnos's light stained the sky a dusky pink. Tear-streaked runnels through the grime and gore that crusted her cheeks. The boy's hand was cold and growing stiff. He had been dead for hours. Someone had failed him. Perhaps, perhaps everyone in his life who should have cared for him, everyone who should have protected him, everyone who should have safeguarded him from walking down this dark path, Beitun's path. She made a vow to Hixnos, swearing by the first rays of morning light, swearing to help boys like this, swearing to be a guardian to those who were too young to face the cruelty of this world on their own. And so, she abandoned a promising military career. She abandoned rank, glory, and her comrades in arms. They needed her far less than that boy had. Perhaps it was hubris to think that she could make a difference, but she would try. Batoon take her, she would try. It was nearly 35 years since she had made that vow to Hyksnos, and she wasn't about to break it now. The High Sister could go to the shadows with her unconcern. Children hadn't gotten missing in these numbers in all her years at Timber Home. Not since Sir Amrin Kinorin, the Hound of Hyksnos, had come recruiting for his radiant vanguard nearly 30 years ago, taking her precious Jacob with him. In her chambers, she fell into a simple kata. It was the first one she learned in training as an empire soldier, the forms familiar even after all these years. She flowed through lotus blossom, waves on the shore, and twisting ivy, allowing her mind to wander, to puzzle over the fate of the missing children. It wasn't unheard of for street gangs to recruit children from the orphanages. The children were taught to read, write, do sums, and some even picked up simple trades before they grew too old for the orphanage to care for them. Because of their basic education, the orphans from Timber Home and other children's homes throughout the city were far more valuable to the gangs than street urchins. But the street gangs were all rigidly controlled by the opaque. It was said that when an urchin stole a loaf of bread, they kept the crust but the opaque took the crumb. She knew not all criminals were opaque, but enough were to provide a sense of order to the criminal underworld that nearly rivaled that of the empire. But the opaque, with a few notable exceptions throughout history, thrived by remaining unseen. Their power lay in the invisibility, but inevitability of their reach. Why then would gangs suddenly be recruiting or kidnapping dozens of children? It was bound to be noticed by the empire, even if the children were orphans. It made little sense, as did the children's disappearance. How had dozens of children absconded in one night under the watch of no less than 30 sisters and three perimeter guards? It all felt too coordinated, too orchestrated for the children to have escaped on their own. How then? Perhaps High Sister Agni was ashamed of the lapse and rather than admit fault, would turn a blind eye. Reyna couldn't though. She had sworn an oath to Hyksnos. She had sworn to that boy she gutted in a field and held while he gasped his last breath. Wherever those children had gone, whatever path they wandered down, it was her responsibility to bring them back. Her resolution grew as she finished her kata with Cloudstalker flares the wings. A thin sheen of sweat coated her skin, but her breathing was even. And rather than exhaustion, she felt filled to bursting with energy and purpose. She dug to the bottom of the trunk at the foot of her bed to where black, tight-fitting armor lay, forgotten and unused for decades. She examined the garment, running a hand over the dark, lacquered ironwood plates. It was light and left a good deal more of her body exposed than traditional armor would have. It was the armor favored by the elite hand-to-hand combat fighters in the service of the empire. Hardened wood and layers of padding protected chest, back, forearms, shins, and tops of the feet, Wickedly sharp spurs of wood protruded from the elbows, knees, and knuckles of the gloves. The sides, upper legs, and upper arms of the armor were no more protective than a tunic would be if they caught a blade. But the armor wasn't designed to catch blades. It was designed to deflect and redirect weapons, so the wearer could get in close and use the sharpened spurs to devastating effect. The armor was snug, but Reyna still fit into it, suddenly grateful that she had kept up with her daily kata routines all these years. She moved into a quick combination of blows, testing the fit and flexibility of the armor. After adjusting the position of two of the lacquered wooden guards, she felt ready. The familiar tincture of nerves and adrenaline coursed like lightning through her limbs, urging her to act. Despite the rain, Reina decided against a cloak. This night, it would only slow her down. She moved from shadow to shadow, flitting through Timberholm like a wraith until she was out a small side door and into the bailey. Her old military stealth skill returned to her as though she had only just been through regimental training. She took several running steps across the empty yard, then vaulted easily from a stack of crates to the roof of the chicken coops, barely startling the birds within as rain hammered down. Her light armor felt more like a submerged dish rag by the time she pulled herself up to the top of the wall. She looked to the north. Her vantage from atop the wall provided a good view of the tower at the center of the city. It presided over all of Caspain. Despite the rain, it stood, defiantly driving back the oppressive darkness. The tower itself was made entirely of stained glass, as were the walls that surrounded the Everlight district. Indestructible and crafted by the beacon herself, The constant glow of the Everlight gave Raina hope as she dropped over the other side of the wall and out into the much darker streets of the Timbers District.
0: And that's where we'll end the adventure for now. Join us next week for part three and the finale of our season one epilogue. We're doing not one, but two DICE giveaways in conjunction with this episode release. Find us on Twitter for more information on how to enter at RPG Radio Show. If you like the show, please leave us a review on whatever podcasting app you use. Reviews help other listeners know that our show is worth checking out. A special thanks to all of our guest performers. If you'd like to know more about them, check out the episode notes for links to their socials. Now, stay tuned for a word from another friendly podcast. Witness an exploration of imagination.
1: Uh, I cast cure wounds.
0: Award-winning level acting. I reach forward and I open the door. Non-stop suspense. What am I reading? Whose turn is it? And twists and turns that will have you talking around the water cooler for days.
2: Dale, if I hear you say that you're jealous of Davin's necklaces one more time.
0: All this and more in The Hired Swords. Coming to a podcast near you.
1: The Hired Swords is the D&D 5e actual play podcast and cannot be held responsible for any side-splitting laughter, falling in love with fictional characters, or general desires to start hoarding fantasy sets of dice. Please listen responsibly. Available anywhere podcasts are sold.